0: Which city are you in? I'm I'm in New York for now, and then heading to um, to Miami in a couple of weeks.
1: Oh, nice! Maybe I'll see you out there. I can hear the cat. Yeah, she's uh, she's jealous that I'm chatting with you. But um, <laughs> I'm I am i i thought about adding her as a guest, but she's so cute. Anyway, um, thanks for taking the time today. I figure we'll get you know a couple dozen listeners live, and then many hundreds if not thousands after I uh, release it. But um, it's good to hear from you and uh, good to connect. I wanted to uh, just introduce you quickly. So for people that don't know, Lior is a a good friend and he is the CEO and founder of both Alt and Lob, two highly successful companies that have raised gobs of money but also have great businesses. Um, Alt is super exciting. It's in the alternative assets space. Uh, you can buy any trading card you want. You can send in your own trading cards for sale and distribution. Um, and then on the lob side, it's sort of direct mail APIs, similar to Twilio for direct mail. And I've been fascinated that you can run both of these at the same time. So would love to hear from you as to how you're doing that. And then we can launch into your background story. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I feel like this is the number one question I get asked these days. Um I work hard. I feel like it's my like number one piece of advice to to new founders. Like you can't shy away from the hard work. Um, So I work hard. I like working. Um, I probably work harder than I should. So it just takes up a lot of my time. But I think I've hired really well. Um, You know, what I've learned, Mike Maples gave me a really good piece of advice early on in my career, which was uh, my my job as the CEO should really be the VP of nothing. And I really took that to heart um, because I definitely was the VP of a lot of things starting off at Lob in the early days and just started looking for people that were a lot smarter than me, almost like I would want to work for them uh, that could run an entire function. And so I started figuring out like, how do I go get the best people? Um, And so I really perfected that model at Lob to a point where I do feel like I'm the VP of nothing there. Uh, And then when I started Alt, I tried to do that even quicker. I actually started off with an entire management team within the first, call it like 90 days. Um, and so just having such a great group of people allows me to actually think about um, things in the future. So I, I try to spend three my my time thinking about what's three to four years out, and I let the team kind of run what's what's one to two years out.
1: Nice. Yeah, I remember I met some of your team, and uh, it, it's pretty fascinating. I mean, Lob could probably go public soon. I mean, it seems like it's just a business that's scaling incredibly well. So uh, now it gives you an opportunity to to build the next uh, the next monster company. in Alt, maybe talk a little bit about each of these businesses a little bit more for the audience and what they are and um, how they started out and how they've evolved.
0: Yeah, let's let's start with Lob. I mean. Lob really fell into my lap when when Harry and I started it back in 2013. I had, you know, I'd recently started my career on Wall Street uh, thinking that I was going to build this machine that would trade stocks and bonds all day long so that I can travel the world. And when I didn't like the culture there, I somehow found my way at Amazon, um, working at Amazon Web Services. And I really just liked how they took something that traditionally was really, um, really operational, like you used to have to order servers, provision them and spin them up. And that would take like three to three to six months. And I was like, wow, they just took that entire manual workflow and automated it and made it available to, you know, millions of businesses. And I was like, wow, okay, that pattern matching that, that's something that I want to be in the business of. And so I remember like trying to think, um, what other businesses could I do that in? I remember seeing Stripe was trying to apply that to payments, payments was a really tedious workflow. I saw Twilio doing it for SMS. And then randomly, you know, Harry and I were coming back from skiing one day and he was talking about how at Microsoft they were sending a ton of direct mail and and he just described this really manual workflow. And I was like, oh my God, this could be it. You know, at, at Amazon, we're sending all of emails through an API. It's a very like modern, you know, workflow. But Microsoft, who's a similar tech company, has a completely adjacent workflow that's very manual. And so we were like, okay, like, what if we, what if we try direct mail? Um, and so we kind of fell into that. Um, and it's been pretty exciting. I mean, 10 years in, I will tell you that there's probably very few 24 year olds that wake up and say, I want to get into direct mail, but you know, we do own that market. Um, and, you know, I have so many friends who have been in businesses where they have direct competitors. It, it's definitely a luxury. Right. And, you know, what gets me excited about that business, it's a very durable business. You know, it's, It's not crypto. It's not, you know, your sexy consumer company, but it provides real value for for companies and it saves them a ton of money and makes their businesses a lot more efficient. And um, I think those are a lot of the unspoken businesses that like really like hold up the economy. So that's kind of how Lob got started.
1: And now now you've got some pretty amazing logos. I mean big telcos, big direct mail vendors, big direct mail providers, some travel companies. I mean, there's a lot of big customers that I use Lob, which is quite impressive.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, Capital One is the biggest mail sender in the world. And they're they're one of our customers. Verizon, Square, Brad Street, um, Geico, Booking.com. Um, yeah, a lot of really great companies, a lot of insurance companies, Oscar Insurance. So we, we try to we really have the gambit of, of industries, and it's it's really intriguing to think about who sends direct mail. Like, people always ask me who sends direct mail. I'm like, probably every company. Um, you just don't know the use case. It's not generally like the use case that you think it is.
1: Right. And uh, so so now let's let's go into alt. I remember with alt, the most the most h- hilarious part about this is one of the things you used to say to me whenever I would see you is, "Hey, have you found any good ARBs lately?" Meaning, like, arbitrage. (laughs) Like, have you found any good things to buy on the cheap and then resell them at a markup? And I remember you've just been, you have been amassing like basketball cards. Is that, and then, and then you said, Oh, I'm going to build a company out of this. (laughs) Maybe you want to expand a little bit about that. But I think it goes into your personality and and sort of maybe your upbringing also that like you just are fascinated by arbitrage. I mean, me too. I mean, it's kind of like my my dad always uh, got me into it. But I'm just curious how. Your upbringing led you to that. Obviously, your training on Wall Street did too. But that'd be a cool way to dovetail into it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I you know seeing my parents, you know, come come from Israel to the U.S. having nothing and really having to work very hard and you know really kind of make what whatever they wanted to happen. I kind of took that to heart, where I was like, you know, anything is possible. You just have to put your mind to it. Um, and you just got to find a problem that if you solve, it could be a really big business opportunity. And, and so like on all you know, I think people are still so, slowly realizing what our, our, bigger vision is. Um, but I've always been fascinated with just finding arbitrages and finding unique assets that actually hold value or just like, you know, pockets of liquidity or marketplaces that maybe are, are rather large, but have some sort of like information asymmetry, Mm -hmm. where I can go in and and arbitrage. I mean, if you think about it, in the 70s and 80s when the stock market existed, there was a lot of room for arbitrage. Whoever had the best information um, to what things were trading at, how companies were valued, generally was able to value the companies most efficiently and then obviously go out and find the inefficiencies in the market. We actually Mm -hmm. can apply that to a lot of different things. So I've always been fascinated with that. I think what sparked me starting alt was i had amassed a, a pretty large collection of sports cards um in right before covid and i had just I, I went i remember i went to a bank to go get a loan because everyone was leaving san francisco and i was like hey okay, maybe i'll move to napa maybe i'll you know go buy a home and you know well, well who knows what was going to happen with covid back then i was like okay i'll go i'll go to napa and just like you know hang out outside for a little bit and i was just shocked that i mean i, I don't know if i was shocked it was just it was it was frustrating that every time I would go to a bank, that you know I had this you know massive company lob, I had this massive portfolio of sports cards, they just wouldn't underwrite me a loan, and I just was like, this is so broken. Like you know, like people are investing millions of dollars, including some of these banks, into these private companies. How are they not thinking of them as real collateral? Like they're investing at the preferred price, but yet they won't even lend to it at like one percent the preferred, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, that's where I was like, okay. These alternative assets, you know whether it's a collectible or private equity the the growing amount of people that I know, their balance sheets are looking more and more into the alternative assets versus traditional assets. There needs to be a company that understands these alternative assets to be able to generate the liquidity that people need. and so that's really the vision of old is to create a platform that creates liquidity and transparency for alternative assets. We, we started with trading cards as really a proof of concept to showcase to people like, Hey, like this is a, you know, $20 billion market. It's super liquid. We can actually just bring all the data, centralize the ecosystem and actually create a real asset class. And so, you know, trading cards was really kind of the proof of concept and what people are going to see over the course of this year is that we're going to start adding a lot more asset classes um, from watches to art to sneakers, um, and then eventually we're. Oh, when, when are and... you doing
1: watches? Watches is going to be great. Gary Tan would be thrilled. Is going to be thrilled <laughs> to launch watches.
0: <laughs> you know, I I try not to put timelines on anything, but definitely sometime in the next twelve months, we will have uh, some of these assets on the platform. We will be we will be launching some really interesting uh, collections, so that you can actually buy baskets, not just like single assets oh. as well. Interesting and. Um, yeah, we've already actually started doing loans against these assets. So if you, you know, if you're looking against, if you're looking for a loan against any alternative asset, and I really mean the gambit of alternative assets, we have already started, we've already written over $10 million of loans uh, against the portfolio of these assets.
1: And are you planning on NFTing them or, or decentralizing the fractionalization as well? Or are they going to be tradable uh, at some point? Yep.
0: So, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to pioneer is this concept of an asset backed NFT or just uh, a real asset, a token that's backed by a real world asset. So I like bridging kind of the old world and the new world. And I'm really fascinated by crypto. I'm fascinated by NFTs. I think so far, a lot of the proof of concepts or use cases have been purely digital and more in the art space. I'm more excited about the way we can actually utilize these things to create utility for real world assets. So whether it's fractionalizing a collectible or creating an NFT on a collectible and we house the collectible in the real world to be able to go get to lend against it. um, Those are kind of the the big projects that I would say we're going to be coming out with products over the course of the next year.
1: Awesome. Cool. Okay. So, so now let's shift gears a little bit, you know, talk about your upbringing and, uh your parents are immigrants and and how that sort of impacted you would love to hear about where you grew up and what it was like
0: yeah And it's so interesting i think until i really started a company and even talking to you i never pattern matched so much that a lot of founders are 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 immigrants and it definitely has to do something with your your upbringing so i mean my parents moved from israel to the us um in the late 80s i was born in 88 so maybe two or three years before um They uh, came here for, uh, they worked, my dad worked in in Milwaukee for some aeronautics company. I think that's what brought him to the U.S. Um, And so I, you know, I don't really remember the first couple of years. I primarily grew up in in Chicago. But what I Mm -hmm. saw my parents do was just work, you know, extraordinarily hard. My my dad in his early days, he worked on on Wall Street, actually worked in New York and would only fly back on the weekends. I mean, you know, you know, that's a lot. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I didn't see him for many years, um, but, you know, that the work ethic to go and do that, to, you know, obviously put food on the table, like I didn't really appreciate probably until the last couple of years. And then similarly, my mom had worked for SAP uh, America for many years and, you know, didn't even put two and two together that it was a tech company. I don't know if I'd consider it a tech company these days, but, you know, a lot of, I would say like my DNA of like tech and, and finance really comes from them even though I probably wouldn't tell that to their face. I always thought I just kind of like uncovered it myself. So um, yeah, I just, I just saw them work really hard, you know, in the, you know, in the early days, you know, when I was young, I probably didn't appreciate it because I just didn't get to see them as often. But, you know, now, you know, in my thirties and I look back, I'm like, wow, they really worked really hard. They set out a goal. They left their families, you know, in their late twenties to come here for, you know, clearly opportunities um, that they were really excited about. And they, you know, they they did what they came to do. Like they're obviously like very happy and, um, you know, that put um, a lot of motivation on me that I could do the same thing in whatever way that, you know, whatever that meant for me in, in my future. And so I think probably when I was 17, 18, I started having like my first career ambitions, probably piggybacking of what I saw them do. Right.
1: And why did they leave Israel? You know, I mean, it's one of my favorite places to visit. It's obviously changed significantly, but I, I mean, Tel Aviv is one of my favorite cities in the world. I, I could I could see myself living there. You know, what what compelled them to sort of leave, and and how did they um, how did their family end up there? Also, would be great to know the background.
0: Oh yeah, I don't know how everyone, you know, actually got to Israel. I do know that like the majority of my grandparents, like, were from Romania and Persia. Um, Oh, yeah. I I mean, I actually don't know the story of how everyone got to Israel, um, Mm -hmm. or at least like off the top of my head. I I, I know that there was a lot, you know, I think a lot of people come to the US because of like opportunity. It's really exciting. You know, I, I'd imagine a lot of people even come here for just a couple of years thinking that they're going to go back and then they come here and you know, obviously, like the opportunity that they have just kind of changes the way and um, shapes their life really differently. And so I imagine, you know, my dad found an opportunity to work in an aeronautics company. He had, you know, they were really big travelers. They, you know, they lived in France and my dad went to the inside. Um, and so probably coming to the U.S. was probably both interesting, was a new type of opportunity. Uh, I don't know what the tech community of Israel looked like in the 80s, but I imagine it's not what it was today. Um, and so it, it was probably just one of those exciting opportunities. And, you know, you know, being in physics and probably looking to be in finance, you know, there's, you know, you want to be in, in New York, you want to be in the the epicenter of the world.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And and uh, one of the things that also I, I love about Israeli culture and Persian culture that are so similar, at least in my, my experience, is that we are raised to be innately negotiators. And like yeah. we always bargain. And so maybe talk a little bit about that.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting, right? Yeah. It's like, we get this, definitely we get this, um, reputation for being like hard negotiators. I learned to negotiate from <laughs> my mom and my grandmother and my grandmother, you know, she's Polish, but I think her descent, you know, she from Persia is her main, like, um, sort descendants, or uh, her, her, her great, her grandparents were from, um, I think it's this. you know, I, I remember going to like the black market in Israel, the flea markets with my grandma and she just always taught me like how to make the, it was like the psychology. She's like, how to make the faces. And like, before I finalize a deal to like walk away, um, (laughs) you know, I, it was like, you know, I just saw it in action for so many years and like, it literally was a, it, it is a dance. Like I always tell people this, it's like, it's a dance. Like you literally, they do the same thing. Um, And so I'm, I've always been intrigued by the the psychology of, of negotiation. And so, you know, I saw, saw my grandma do it, you know, on both sides. I saw my mom do it in business. I used to go around with her when I was a kid to, she was a contracts, she, she ran contracts and sales at SAP America and she would go and around and she would take me to her clients. And I just remember, I'm sure she told me about it and, you know, I would try to understand that. So I've, yeah, I've slowly picked it up. I've, You know, I love buying and selling things on eBay. So I always get these reps. I've I've seen how so many different people negotiate. Um, But yeah, Israelis, they're always the toughest. You know you're in, you you know you're about to have to fight for something if there's an Israeli on the other side. it's, (laughs) It's, you know, I feel like every time I talk to an Israeli on the phone and we're doing some sort of like agreement, partnership or contract negotiation, it's like, it's just like shit. Right, we're both looking at each other. It's like, we can we just make this as painless as possible? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I I have been in a few very tough negotiations, but but I have to say that I also like the honesty and and uh, it's a it's fun too. I mean, it, you you never pay the price that's listed. You always pay you know some some deduction on that. And uh, yeah, and I mean, so, I'm sure you yeah. grew up on it too. It's like never take the first totally. price. Don't don't buy
0: at MSRP. Don't be the schmuck that takes MSRP.
1: Right. And I feel like there in America, that's not always the case. Like people are not raised that same way. It's a definitely different, different cultures. And, and uh, I, I like it. I think it's fun. Um, so, so maybe uh, talk a little bit about the the premise of the, the reason I'm doing this show, which is that the cap on visas is so low. It's about 65,000 right now for H1Bs. We have labor costs have gone up significantly. Actually, the, the, Inflation print this morning showed that wages have gone up faster than they ha- have in the past 20 years, 25 years. Uh, w- what's so wrong and broken with it, with the immigration policy in the United States? What do you think we could do to fix it? You know, you're talking about. I, so I'm I've
0: never really gone deep on politics as much as much as you have. Um, so I'm probably <laughs> I'm probably That's like. A a, the. Yeah. You know, I, I tried to. This is where I'm probably spending too much time working and not enough paying attention to the news. Um yeah it's it's yeah I really am not as informed as most people to even like answer this question. I have no idea what's broken. I mean it's it's really tough like you know what I what I would want to see is that people get the opportunity that I've had that my parents have had, you know that other people who have our first, you know, generation get. And so I hope that opportunity like doesn't cease to exist because you know, I, I don't take for granted for a second that like I live in the U S and I've got this opportunity and I get the, every single day i I get the ability to like, you know, start my own company and be able to like, you know, do anything that I want to be quite honest. And so, um, yeah, I have no idea who's creating policies, you know, I've never been in those conversations, but, um, yeah, I, ho- I hope, you know, we always have an oppor- I hope these opportunities just continue to exist.
1: Yeah, I mean, do you have employees at Alton Lob that are in other countries right now? Do you have you started to look globally since COVID started? Actually,
0: we've started to. So we didn't, you know, we weren't before. Like we were always big proponents of trying to bring people here if there was an opportunity that they wanted. I think this is probably the first year that um, you know, especially after COVID, everyone is traveling, and I think the barriers just online have gone down so much that so you really can have like a worldwide remote workforce. Um, Mm -hmm. And so to me, I've, you know, I try to figure out where is the best talent, just, you know, just objectively, where can I get the best talent? What areas in the world am I connected to that have, that I feel like are going to be epicenters of talent over the next five years that I can be an investor in actually like help that community out. So obviously very connected to, to Israel. I've always wanted to you know, be more in, invested in the communities and the infrastructure there. And so I, I do hope that I'm able to connect my business to to Israel more than I have in the past, especially um, just how, you know, the world is a lot more connected online these days. So, um, yeah, it would, be, right. it would be cool one day to have an office in Israel or to, you know, there's such great talent there. Um, they're doing a lot with crypto and alternative assets. So, um, yeah, hopefully Alt can be the one that allows me to, to Spend get close in there.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah do, that would be, that would be fun, it would be both fun, but obviously hopefully economical too.
1: <laughs> do, do you have your Israeli citizenship yet or, or I don't? Do you, have you don't. not gotten it?
0: You could probably yeah. get it
1: pretty easily. I mean, is that something you've thought about at all or, or no, I, no I, ha- I haven't,
0: no. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm an American citizen.
1: So I, you know, I always use my
0: like American passport to travel. Um, yeah, I've, I don't actually know like what the benefits are of dual passport or citizenship. I probably should look into it.
1: (laughs) And, uh, and I also, another thing I wanted to touch on is that you've also been really uh, sort of nomadic at this point, right? Like you used to live in San Francisco, COVID hit and you're, I think you're one of the entrepreneurs that I know that has sort of moved between cities. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you've been able to balance your work uh, with that change?
0: Yeah. I mean, this one's, at least for me, just looking, looking back, really interesting because three years ago, if you would have asked me what I thought about remote work, I would have said, absolutely not. I love being in the office. I love people like, you know, why would I want to be home on my computer all day long? And I would say, you know, two, two years later, my opinion has completely changed. I, I, I think one, you know, San Francisco, at least for me, like the amount of people that are working there is slowly going down. And so I always want to be of, in the community of people who are really building businesses. And I think, you know, San Francisco has not allowed that. And so that brought me initially to both Miami and New York on the East Coast. And so when there was an opportunity to go and meet people in person in Miami back in early 2021, I I, I think I remember I got there January 2nd. I was like, okay, you know, I want to meet people. I want to start talking about business. Um, So that got me really excited. And then I started realizing when I was working from home, I was getting a lot more done than I did when the office, like I'm, I'm such a social person. I think I ended up distracting more people at work and distracting myself. And then all of a sudden being at home and having some quiet, it's like, wow, I can like cook food. I can be focused. I found myself just, you know, being so much more productive to the point where I had obviously another business. I felt so productive. Um, (laughs) And and I kind of like it now, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I still go for a lot of social engagement. Like my, my apartments every single day tend to be, you know, a bunch of portfolio companies or other CEOs working out of it. Um, so I love co-working with people, but having, being able to have like a day in the week where I can be at home or go to a city and not feel guilty that I'm not in the office has honestly been, um, I've, I, I could not be more excited about it.
1: Yeah, no, totally. I mean, San Francisco, unfortunately has, most of my friends have left. It's uh, it's pretty upsetting. I try to spend more time in other cities. And it's tough because like my whole family's here, but you have sort of the luxury you can like go wherever wherever you want. And I I hear that. I mean, um, most of the founders, some of the best founders uh, have left the city just because of how poorly it's been run. Do you feel like the city sort of didn't serve the founder community well, or was it also just that you wanted to spend more time in other places? I think it's a combination of things. So I think first, like, given that my
0: family mainly lives in Israel a little bit in Colorado, I don't have, like, a natural grounding to a specific city in in the U.S., right? right? like There's not one that I keep going to because of home. So I think that's one. Um, I think too, because of COVID and everything being more remote, I didn't have a grounding to SF because I wasn't going into like our San Francisco office anymore. Right. And so if you think about it, the only thing that was grounding me in San Francisco was the community. And so as soon as the community of entrepreneurs started getting more decentralized to Austin, Miami, and New York, you know, I was very much kind of curious to see, you know, what is it, you know, what is it like? Um, And so that kind of, I think started it. And as soon as I, you know, went there, I was like, wait a second, this is what got me excited about San Francisco in 2013, where I was like, hey, I want to go and start a company. There's no place like doing that and then San Francisco. And so, yeah, right now, I think, you know, the communities are not in San Francisco. I don't know. I don't think it's permanent. But, you know, that's the beauty of being this, I wouldn't call myself nomadic, but being able to easily move and Um, you know, with kind of change as the world changes, like if it comes back to San Francisco, I'd be really excited. I love San Francisco. You know, it's done a lot for me. I enjoy the weather. Um, I love my apartment there. So, um, I'm just very agile. I think that's just the way of like how I build things, whether it's community, like if things are changing, I try to go with the change and not being steadfast. Like I'm, I'm a fast learner and a fast evolver.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um Cool, well, you know this has been this has been great. I, I know that you're quite busy. Um, I think the last question I have is if is there something that you think should be done from an immigration perspective um, to to help people like you emerge more? I mean, what do you think that should be done as the number one thing to bring the community globally to the United States uh, and, and help them build multiple companies like you have? Is there anything you could think of that would go along with that? Um, well, I think the first thing is to connect
0: digitally, right? Just because they're not physically here doesn't mean that they can't start a business, right? So I would say for people out there who are trying to start a business, like uh, entrepreneurship is really global, right? Like you, you invest in companies outside of the U S so do I. And so I don't think they need to wait to get to the U S you know, that, that said, if that's, if that's a dream of theirs to live here, right? I think starting a company wherever you are is a really good way of kind of, um, showcasing yourself and creating opportunity that then does open doors, you know, fortunately or unfortunately a- allows you to get into the U.S. a lot faster, given that we're very capitalistic society. So I-, I think the best thing to do is really try to figure out how to start a business or how to be entrepreneurial in your own way. And that will somehow lend itself to you coming here. I feel like if you're in business anywhere in the world, you're, you're coming to the U.S. at some point.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. Well. Thanks so much for coming on, Leo. I know that you're probably busy. It is Friday. And so I w- hope that you have a great weekend in New York. I'm, I'm jealous. It must be cold there, though. Probably not much. It is outside.
0: snowing. It's snowing, but it's nice. I'm having a Shabbat dinner here. Um, oh. So I'm excited about that. My parents are in town. They flew in from Israel. Um, so, but wow. never too busy That's for awesome. you. Awesome. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I, I appreciate it. Well, I'll let you get back to it. Shabbat Shalom.
0: Shabbat Shalom. You have five hours to fly in a plane and join us.
1: (laughs) I'll see if I can make it.
0: All right. right, See you, man.